Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Crude Britannia is a stunning new book that charts the UK's dominance of and addiction to crude oil and how it has shaped this country, its history, its outlook, even its culture. At times it's a brass-stoff, nostalgic, feel-good movie, at other times a spy novel, and occasionally even a whodunit. It is co-authored by James Marriott and Terry McAllister, two people who, through writing and activism, have dedicated much of their lives to this area. And I am joined by one of their co-authors today for some crude talk. Welcome, James Marriott. Thank you, Alex, and thank you for having me on this podcast. It's my pleasure. It's a great book. It seems to me that the physical journey involved in compiling the material was vital. You didn't just do desk research. You didn't interview people over the phone. You traveled to them and by extension to the areas that used to be dominated by those enormous chimneys. Why did you see this as important? For me, it's tremendously important in the form of the idea of autopsy that one should see for oneself. One should under, try and understand that self sees what it can by going there and sensing places and feeling them. That's the way in which I've got at least a fighting chance of communicating what those places are like to the reader on the page. Hmm. That's one aspect. And I think the other is that the industry keeps its power through abstraction. It keeps its power because it seems very complex and very abstract and also most people can't get their heads around it and also it's at the same time it's very boring and by trying to break through that abstraction hopefully you can disempower it in some way. So by making it bricks and mortar you make it tangible essentially and you choose to tell the story I mean there are many ways to tell this story right it could be very academic and very dry Um, you take so much detail out of the narrative and put it in the footnotes that they're about they're about a quarter of the book at the back but you choose to tell the story through the people who worked in the industry and who to some extent feel homeless and abandoned by it was that a conscious choice before you started or was it through the process of interviewing that you began to think we couldn't put this better and and if we could we shouldn't i think it was a We started out with a feeling that we needed to talk to lots of people and have people represented in their own voices. But the more that we did that, the more powerful that became and more gripping it came for us, and hopefully it is for the reader. Mm. And I'm particularly happy that, that this is a book which encompasses people from the very top of the companies, very top of the corporations, and senior politicians to folks in refinery who work in in the canteens of refineries, to oil workers on the rigs and so on. Mm. For me, it's a very important thing to represent as much as possible those the wide range and diversity of characters involved in this vast machine, partly because most of the histories that are produced, even even the books which are critical, tend to focus on what I would call the officer class. They only really represent the people at the top. Did you have a favourite encounter, something that genuinely affected (laughs) you and changed your thinking in the book? There were so many. There were so many. I mean, really so many. I think sometimes people said things which were so powerfully moving. I, I mean, 
the trade unionist Jake Malloy, who works with offshore trade uh, offshore oil workers in the North Sea, based in Aberdeen, when he's talking about his experience of talking to people who've been, for example, had very 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 serious burns on skin burns from mm. in the process of decommissioning the rigs, that's extraordinarily powerful. I found it very mm. powerful. And then there were other delightful things where, for example, we met we went to meet somebody who thought we thought was going to be extraordinary, very rather dry. He'd been a, 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 a senior scientist and technician all his life in a research lab. Now, he turned out to be the most fantastically hilarious guy <laughs> in, the, in the suburbs of Chester. And he was a delight. And we spent two days with him, basically. He was great. <laughs> Scientists can be funny. You heard it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it was great. It was fantastic. Now, it may sound strange to our listeners when they say that this book is filled with music. Most sections and titles are song-related. You're always listening to something in the car. You're always suggesting a track to the reader, always quoting lyrics. What is the link? Well, in the first instance, it's quite, it's quite simple. We both like music. Uh, and Terry, he doesn't own up to this very much. He was a drummer in a punk band, and he was the editor of a punk fanzine called Bored Stiff. You know, he's got history, he's got mileage. But I think more seriously than that, for me, music is about feeling. It's about a structure of feeling. It's about a way of seeing the world. It drives my emotions. And I was interested in the way, I became more and more interested in the way music had been fueled by the oil industry, or the oil world, should we say, and itself had represented that oil world, most obviously in sex and drugs and cars. But, you know, and and that sense of, it creates the feeling, the sentiment of a whole realm. And if we're to move out of oil, what would be the music of that world that we're moving mm, into? Mm. And what would be the feeling of that world that we're moving into? Uh, you see, I'm a music man myself, and uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a big um, record collector. Yeah. Uh, and, and I was taken by the sense uh, that, you know, crude oil permeated every aspect of our lives in every product you can you can think of and i know by way of example for instance that the advent of flexi discs those, those very thin flexible late 70s early 80s uh, records was brought about by a sort of the 73-74 embargo and a, a huge shortage of crude oil. Yes. I always find that extraordinary. I love that too. Um, one of my favorite bits in the book is a description of how oil moving from an oil well in Nigeria to the making of an, a Beatles album. EMI made it in, in Middlesex, in Hayes in Middlesex, and then mm. it being played on the dance sets in, in 1965, Baby, You Can Drive My Car. There were so many things that we just couldn't fit it in the book. One, one relates exactly to what you're saying, which is one guy explained to me how basically you could read the end of the multi-LP uh, prog rock things like uh, Yes and, and the turn into singles in punk as being actually to do with the commodity price of oil yeah. in that key moment in the mid-70s. <laughs> Going back in time, if one overlaid a, a map 
of the British Empire, the exploits of the West, the East India Company, and the oil giants network, it would correspond frighteningly well. How did Britain's colonial past influence its oil sector in the first place? I think you're absolutely right. The origin of oil is so deeply imperial, and the experience of it is still so deeply imperial. Just to give a few vignettes of that, as is well known, a key moment in oil becoming central to British economy was that Churchill decided to shift the uh, fleet in 1914 from coal to oil. Therefore, became that became a key customer for the Anglo-Iranian oil company. But that Anglo-Iranian oil company itself was in many ways an extension of the Raj. When the first wells were drilled in 1909 in Persia, they had to defend the wells from local people who basically didn't want those wells drilled and, and resisted forcefully. And they defended it by bringing in a small army from the Raj, from, from India. Mm-hmm. In terms of the continuum of the empire, much of the book talks about the situation in Nigeria. The situation in Nigeria continues to this day, as many people will know, to be appalling uh, in terms of environmental pollution, in terms of social justice in the oil-producing area of the Niger Delta. And the reason why it is that that is that basically the system was set up in 1936 and it continued since then. The book is full of speechlessness-inducing stuff, For instance, going forward to World War II, I had no idea that Shell apparently split into a British division that supplied the Allies and another one based in The Hague that merrily flew the Nazi flag that supplied the Axis. And that's causing them a little bit of difficulty now. There there are sort of articles being written about it and they're having to make statements about it. For me, the thing... It's a, it's a very interesting historiography behind this, which is that, you know, for a long time this was, was denied by the company and and then it became sort of stated by the company. But in the way in which it was stated by the company in the sort of two, early 2000s was largely to say, well, the situation that happened of the splitting of the company into two parts, the Allied part and the Axis part, was was somehow an aberration as a result of some individuals who took up the wrong ideas. Mm. But actually, it's fairly common practice in large corporations to do the key thing that you're doing, which is to be led by the key demand, which is to make return on capital. Mm. If the Axis powers had won, and in 1940-41 that looked pretty likely, then Shell would have been an absolutely major player in the continent of Europe Mm. because it swept up assets as the Axis powers advanced into other countries, such as in Greece, in fact, Alex. Uh, The Shell Company bought up assets in Greece as a result of coming in on the back of the Wehrmacht. Now, if the war hadn't ended in 1945 in the way it did, they'd be doing just fine on the back of that. (laughs) The reason I picked this out is not only that it's sort of gobsmacking, but that it feels like it typifies a sort of bet-hedging amorality in the sector. I mean, this behavior went on 
for a long time, well into the 90s at least, the sort of agitating war, manipulating dictators, shady deals. I mean, the example of protesters in Nigeria being hanged. It's to some extent to do with the nature of the commodity. Oil is a, is a key part of industrial system which produces tanks and armaments. There's a kind of violence that's in the nature of the commodity. It's everywhere you look, and we try and explore this in many parts of the way in which the industry works, you see a kind of violence taking place there. And it's even in the case of in the domestic industry. You know, the, I, we try and explain how the way in which the UK offshore industry was effectively created as a kind of colony in the North Sea, mm. where different legislative principles applied to than those on 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 land, um, and different attitudes towards trade unions, different attitudes towards gender, different attitudes towards the environment. A kind of sep- a world set apart, just as Shell's operations in Nigeria during the empire and the post-colonial period have been a world set apart and continue to be so. One of the central questions that the book poses, if not the central question, is to what extent did the industry wield disproportionate influence, the tail wagging the dog, like you say? What was your conclusion on that? (sighs) It's a very difficult thing to draw any conclusion on. I think the tail wags the dog quite remarkably. And it's not just in the 70s and 80s and 90s, but if you look in the last decade, the degree to which this oil companies push and oil company executives pushing the British polity is quite remarkable. Which strikes me as, I mean, it struck me as quite strange, right, that the sector retained a magnitude of influence long after it could be justified by its actual size and importance. It sort of had an aura of former grandeur that persisted and possibly persists. I think that's true, and that's a very interesting thing historically. I think if if you study, say, for example, the East India Company, the East India Company was very, very powerful from mid mid sixteenth century, uh, mid seventeenth century, to really was losing its power in the eighteen tens. But it took another fifty years when it was extraordinarily powerful in the body politic of Britain. Basically, until the, the until the first Indian uprising in 1857, there is this long shadow after the scale of these companies now in relation to big data companies on pure capitalization grounds is radically reduced than it was ten years ago. But the scale within the British polity, the political organisation, is still remains very very strong. One of the questions I don't hear pondered much is. How big a blow is the decline of oil to the cause of Scottish independence? Surely the value of those reserves was quite central to the argument for uh, economic autonomy. Yes, I think historically it was. I think there's there's no doubt about it that the I mean, independence, the independence, political independence movement has been going for a long time, for a hundred years or so, acutely in the last. 
in the, in the modern era. It got an enormous boost at the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s when oil was found. Oil was found mm. in 1970. And that allowed the SNP to say, this is Scotland's oil and we are going to become Q8. I think in the, that was still a player in the independence referendum in the um, 2010s, but I don't think it's nearly so much now. I think it's that is that moment has shifted. There's an enormous amount of capital being made right as we speak, for example. Probably about $26 million worth of oil is being pumped down the 40s pipeline today as mm. you and I sit here. But the revenues to the state, the British state on that, uh, tax revenues are tiny. In fact, some uh, there's some argument to say they're negative uh, revenues. Yeah. So the degree to which actually it support would support an independent uh, Scottish economy is now much less than it ever was. And I think it's interesting that you see Nicola Sturgeon being photographed in front of wind farms more than you do in front of oil platforms. By effectively adopting the language of sustainability, rebranding with sort of evergreener-looking logos. You've talked to a lot of people. Was this simply a ruse to prolong the life of the cash cow? Or is the industry genuinely trying to change its business model to green? I think that what you see, in the, I mean, it, it, we're, we're talking about very large corporations, pe- you know, gatherings of 100,000 people. And of course, within that, like in any political party, for example, you get different factions. And I think there were definitely people in the, in the 1990s, for example, who were very sympathetic and, and very committed to the idea of BP going, in quotes, beyond petroleum. And they put a lot of effort into that from mid-1997, say, till about 2007. But at the highest point, the turnover of BP that was from anything other than hydrocarbons was 1%. After a decade of trying to move beyond petroleum, it was essentially only 1% of the turnover of the company was not in, not in hydrocarbons. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to change these structures. Um, and there's a huge resistance within them to doing so. A court in the Netherlands last week ordered Shell to cut its emissions, and this is a a really milestone of a case. There are clean air cases around the world. You know, we saw air quality go on a death certificate for the first time in this country a couple of months ago. There was an IEA report last month that concluded all exploitation of new oil and gas has to stop this year if targets are to be achieved. James Buchan says the fact that all the big Western companies are now selling more oil than they are extracting means that arm of the business is, to quote him, in the throes of liquidation. They're basically cashing in the remaining assets. Do you agree? Is this really the end? I think it's not necessarily the end, but I think it's a key transformation. I think what's interesting is that we see the things that you and I, Alex, have grown up with all our lives, the large oil corporations, for BP, Shell, Exxon, Total, and so on. These are possibly going to transmogrify. They're going to move into a different shape. And what we're seeing in their place is a whole host of much smaller companies which are run by private equity companies. They're not PLCs. They're not publicly limited companies. 
they're almost invariably not listed on the stock exchange. Mm. They're almost invariably um, domiciled in tax havens, certainly not in the UK. I mean, a good example of that is INEOS, which is one of the largest players in the UK North Sea and the biggest player in UK refining. And INEOS is owned by three men. One of them, Sir Jim Ratcliffe, owns 60% of it. He's based in Monaco. The company itself is domiciled outside the UK in terms of tax. These companies, much, these, these companies which are much less obvious in the culture, are the ones which are going to take the running. I, I mean, interesting, you're seeing people at high levels of the com- big corporations moving into those private equity companies. Hmm. It struck me that you describe both big oil and big data as industries that are extricative. Are the Amazons and Facebooks the oil giants of now? I am minded uh, of, you know, Nick Clegg moving from Deputy Prime Minister straight to Facebook's sort of PR operation. And we are seeing that sort of revolving door beginning to develop. Can governments learn lessons from how oil companies were handled or mishandled that apply to trying to contain these new giants? I think it's a very, very interesting area and one which I'd like to explore a lot more. We need to be able to see the extent of these giants. We need to be able to, in a sense, conceptualize them and in a sense be able to recognize them. I'll just give a few little vignettes. What I find interesting is the way in which in the, 50, in the, in the 60s and 70s when I was growing up, to, I, I was eager to collect um, shell stickers and BP stickers for my uh, scrapbooks <laughs> and so on. You know, uh, oil companies were great things and they were lovely and they were very exciting. And obviously now in the culture, lots of people are much more skeptical of it. But the very people who are skeptical of it, like myself, and I'm talking to you now on my Apple laptop, I'm just blind and accepting, in fact, in, indeed enthusiastic about on my Apple laptop. That's a sort of deep cultural construction. One of the things I find really interesting is the way in which companies like the oil companies, essentially they manufactured the future. They were the future. They, what they were trying to do was constantly say, we are the future. This is what the future will look like. Yes, brand loyalty is, uh, is, is not a rational um, yeah. thing. It's an emotional connection, isn't it? It's a sort of love. And when I go to an Apple store to buy some piece of kit, say, for example, in the middle of London, when I walk in, I think the fundamental sensation that, that addresses me into that building is not do some shopping, but relax. You're mm. already here. <laughs> You've arrived in the future. We're not going to persuade you to buy anything because, well done, you're here. You're in the future. <laughs> and it's interesting because the, the, I think they are, you know, an Apple store or, or some similar, they're manufacturing the future as much as they're manufacturing products or at least they're manufacturing the future in order to sell products. Mm. And that's, I think, something very, very deep in our culture, and therefore it's difficult to, for us to see it. You know? And I would go, the same would go for things like Amazon and so on. Finally, you give the last word in the book to a 10-year-old climate activist, Elsie Luna. Why is that? Is there a sense that we are the fossils? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think we are. I mean, one of the things that um, Terry and I talk about is the fact that we're children of the oil revolution. I'm 
58, I think, as far as I remember. I traveled in a car before I was born in my mother's womb. One of the mm. first things to go in my mouth was a, a something out of a petrochemical plant, a plastic teat. And, you know, I am in the oil world. It's framed my thinking. And to some extent, I have to be put on the scrap heap, or at least my understandings have to be put on the scrap heap. And maybe that the, a younger generation is able to do that, move out of the oil world and into some other world. And that's not just a physical thing in terms of not buying plastic bags or not flying from here to there. It's about a feeling, a structure of feeling, moving into a different way of thinking and a different way of feeling. You should see the looks I get in Greek supermarkets when I go with my bags for life. (laughs) (laughs) They think I'm some sort of alien. They try to put plastic bags, a bunch of them, in my bags for life because they feel (laughs) I'm I'm not getting good value for money. Well, this was a, a, a few years ago because they've now converted, actually, and very quickly and very successfully. James, our time has gone all too quickly. Thank you for your time and for your insight on this utterly fascinating subject. Thank you very much, Alex. Thank you for inviting me on. And uh, I hope um, um, I hope you enjoyed the book and I hope others will as well. And thank you too for my co-author, Terry. James Marriott and Terry McAllister's Crude Britannia is out now. And listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday mornings. You'll start the week supplement on Mondays and a longer weekly full panel episode every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. You can also support us on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. This is Alex Andreu saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andre. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>